24-year-old Jennifer Kessie disappeared January 24, 2006. She was last seen at her condo on Conroy Road. We're going to solve a missing persons case, which has haunted Orlando investigators. So we're still waiting for that one person to come through with the one bit of information that could bring Jennifer home. This is Unconcluded, a real-time investigation into the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. I'm your host, Sean Gerd. Last episode, we considered the possibilities of Jennifer Kessie herself, not just her car, being at the Huntington-on-the-Green condominium complex on January 24, 2006. A resident at the complex said she saw a woman she believes to be Jennifer and a ponytailed man walking through the parking lot in the afternoon hours of that day. And many of you had a hard time believing that this person could be Jennifer Kessie. In fact, I did too. But why? It's because of who we believe Jennifer to be and the things that we've heard about her, from her family and from others, about how she was responsible and safety conscious, about how she wouldn't have allowed herself to be put in the type of situation that was described. Even before this podcast, we've all heard bits and pieces over the years describing these characteristics of Jennifer. But a quote from Jennifer's dad, Drew, at the end of a recent Orlando Sentinel article, made this really stand out. He said, After 11 years, it's difficult for her to not be an object. We need people to realize she's a human being. And he's right. Jennifer has become the central figure in an enthralling mystery. But this isn't a novel or a movie. This is real life. While we've always made an effort to remember and consider Jennifer as a person, a daughter, a sister, a friend, and everything that we've done, it did make me stop and think. Have we done enough? What could we offer to make sure that we're not only working towards finding answers in this case, but also reminding everyone, those of us who have never met Jennifer, just who she is? Later in the show, we're going to review the investigation, and there's some other important updates I want to get to as well. But right now, there's nothing more important than trying to answer one question. Just who is Jennifer Joyce Kessie? Jennifer Kessie was born on May 20th, 1981, to Drew and Joyce Kessie in New Jersey, before later relocating to Odessa, Florida, and graduating from Gaither High School in Tampa. It was then off to Orlando to enroll at the University of Central Florida. This is where we start today, just a few hours from where she grew up, in the city that she would later be taken from. Just before heading to Orlando, to start her life as a college student, Jennifer received her random roommate assignments from UCF. She promptly called one of the girls on this list to introduce herself and explained that she had already purchased bedding but was very concerned about the apparent lack of closet space. She was also rushing a sorority and would be moving in a day early. As luck would have it, the girl on the other end of the line was doing the same thing. A girl named Carrie, who would become one of Jennifer's very best friends. 
I've had the pleasure of chatting with Carrie over the last few weeks. In search of information about the Jennifer Kessie we haven't heard so much about over the years. The Jennifer I've come to learn as the amazing and loyal friend. Carrie was more than candid in our conversations, willing to answer any question I had, but hesitant to hear her voice played back to thousands, something I certainly understand. So let's start by rewinding back to 1999, the year Jennifer began college at the University of Central Florida. Before Carrie had even finished moving into her new campus housing with Jennifer, her mom had already decided that she liked Jennifer, simply because Jennifer had cried when her parents left. Jen and Carrie would stay up that night, all night, talking about dreams and plans, as well as their fears for being on their own for the very first time. It's safe to say that it didn't take long for that bond to form, a bond that would never fade. By the end of their first week on their own in Orlando, Carrie and Jennifer had already decided that there was no way that they were going to join different sororities. And by the end of their first year, they had already decided that they weren't going to live apart either. They moved off campus together, along with a few others, to the Gatherings Apartments just off of University Boulevard, directly west of UCF. They'd stay there for a few years. Carrie called them inseparable, and I would say that's a pretty valid description based on my conversations with her and others. In fact, Jennifer would live with Carrie all the way up until November of 2005 when she moved into the Mosaic at Millennia. The only reason that they ended up separating was because Carrie was getting married. I didn't ask Carrie a lot. I simply said, tell me about Jennifer. And Carrie would describe how Jennifer was terrified of bugs, her absolute obsession with the New York Giants, her wicked humor, and their frequent shopping trips. She talked about how she was a huge Dave Matthews Band fan and could rap an entire song after only hearing it a few times. She told me about how Jen loved to snack, but wasn't big on sweets, how she didn't like trying new things to eat and was easily grossed out. And she described how they were both sucked into the beginning of the reality TV boom. But most of all, she talked about how smart and determined Jennifer is. And not just book smart, but with an extreme awareness and common sense beyond that of most. Carrie described how big of a deal it was when Jennifer decided to switch her major from pre-med to business, but that it had come with a clear-cut vision of where she was going and exactly how she was going to get there. Carrie was also quick to point out that Jennifer is someone not afraid to speak her mind and stand up for herself, maybe even portraying a bit of an edge. But behind it was a kind heart, the kind of person to cry and then get mad at herself for doing it. She even talked about overhearing police officers in those early days of Jennifer's disappearance discussing if Jennifer was being bothered and had just been too nice to say anything. But Carrie was very, very clear. That was not Jen. She'd also share more details about the first days of Jennifer's disappearance, about how the second she'd heard that Jennifer hadn't shown up for work, that she knew something was really, really wrong. She talked about how hard it can be for people to grasp just how responsible Jennifer was. 
Carrie also talked about how she'd known Jennifer for so long. They'd lived together for all those years, and they'd been so close, they knew everything about each other, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They were close enough that they could tell each other anything, even those things that weren't becoming, because there was no judgment. She believes that if Jen had some kind of secret or something going on, that she would have been able to tell something was off. She said Jen never really was a good secret keeper. Carrie even recalled her phone conversation with Jennifer the day before she left for St. Croix. Her biggest worry at the time? The bathroom situation with all of those people staying in one location. Carrie mentioned that Jennifer was a creature of habit during the work week, and there's just no way she would have gone back out after she was home in her sweats. But Carrie wasn't the only person I had a chance to talk to about Jennifer. Jennifer the friend. I also spoke with another roommate from college, Lindsay. Uh, so Jen and I met freshman year during sorority rush. This would have been August 1999. And we ended up joining the same sorority. We were um, 80 pies at UCF. Um, and that kind of started an inseparable bond. and. Um, that's how I also met Carrie. The two of them, they lived together, and they were randomly paired um, freshman year, and I basically also lived in their dorm <laughs> with them. Mm-hmm. My conversations with Lindsay went much the same way. My questions were simple. Tell me about Jennifer. She literally is the friend that will drop anything for you. She once drove an hour to me because I was having a um, a meltdown over a breakup. And looking back on it, it was really the stupidest thing. But she dropped everything to eat ice cream and sit there with me and watch TV until the wee hours of the morning. And this was at a time we didn't live together. Um, and she ended up staying the night uh, at my house because I needed consoling. I mean, she had other things to do, you know, but she literally just packed a bag, brought ice cream, and came over. An hour. Drove an hour. I feel like this is going to sound so cliche, but um, Jen is the person who lights up a room. Her laugh is infectious. She's the life of the party, the friend that you want to have. She'll take your secrets to the grave. She'll defend you no matter what. She's got this no-bullshit attitude about her, which I think she gets partly from growing up in Jersey and partly from her parents. Um, who taught her well, but she's got a softer side too, and it's one that I think only a handful, a small handful of her close friends saw, and that was compassion and love and forgiveness and generosity. Oh, gosh. She, Dave Matthews, 24-7. Very much also into music, like her parents, um, you know, 70s type rock. I mean, she loves, sure, 80s and hip-hop and all that kind of stuff, but um, you know, she's very much like her parents. Um, yeah, shopping. We like to go out to bars, um, go out to eat. We did. We took some road trips together. Um, let's see. A few of us went to Alabama for a UCF football game. Jen and I went to Rehoboth Beach one summer for a week vacation together. Um, we've been to New York City together. Um, so she liked to travel. She loved the beach. She basically grew up at the beach. Miss Independent, uh, right there. 
Um, I think she's so strong and, you know, by herself. Um, I don't think that she was ever a needy type person. She never needed companionship. Sure, it was nice. And, yes, she had boyfriends or people that she was interested in. But it was never um, – it was never – something that she needed. And she didn't have that many, now that I think about it. She dated somebody in high school, and then she liked somebody in college, but never really, I don't think she really dated him. And then she dated the, that one guy before Rob. I mean, she she's had very few yeah. actual boyfriends. Matt, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sundays, you pretty much knew that that was like, that there was going to be football on all day. And there was no arguing about what game you were going to watch because if the Giants were playing, Jen was watching the Giants, and that was it. And that was just what you did all day. I remember, oh, gosh, we used to drink crap beer that we, you know, because you can't afford anything else. But she made a killer mac and cheese. She would make homemade mac and cheese, and we'd all sit around the TV and watch the Giants. One of my follow-up questions was just about whether Jen was a person who stayed up all hours of the night or got up early in the morning. I don't really think she was either. I mean, she was responsible. On a work night, she went to bed at a normal hour, you know, mm-hmm. 9.30, 10 o'clock maybe. She wasn't a partier. Sure, on the weekends we would go out, and maybe during the week we went out, but towards the end of college, I remember junior, senior year especially, I mean, Oh, God, what was her? She had this class, Capstone, Cornerstone, you know, one of those. I mean, she was mm-hmm. always studying those last couple of years of college. Plus, she interned at, um, right, her senior year. Didn't she interned or, or did she actually have a job? Gosh, I can't remember. It's been so long. At where she works mm-hmm. now or where she you know, worked professionally. So right. she basically had a real job our senior year. And what about when she first learned of Jennifer's disappearance? It baffles me that someone took her, that this happened. I cannot wrap my mind around how someone succeeded. I know she put up a fight. She, I know some people have probably told you this, but she was smart. And she always had this keen sense of her surroundings. From from the moment I met her, it wasn't anything we learned in school or learned in a sorority. She was just always really smart about who she was with, who she was associating herself with, who was behind her at the mall, who she parked next to. Um, I, I just... It baffles me that this happened. She just... Um, you know, when we all learned, I think that... Um, you know, from her, that she was just smart never to leave any of her friends behind and never to be the one left behind, When whether we were out at a sorority event or we were out on our own or out to dinner or at the mall. It was never, it was always like going in groups, what's that term, the buddy system, you know, we just... She was just always smart like that. Maybe it came from her obsession with watching Law and Order SVU. I don't know. But that girl watched hours, aside from reality TV, hours and hours of Law and Order SVU. And maybe that's what, you know, helped shape this, this sense of smarts about her. 
I also asked if Jennifer had ever had issues with anyone. Oh, gosh, never. And if anyone had an issue with her, I didn't know about it. I mean, she, aside from just her her good friends, she pretty much kept to herself. I mean, she never was the one to start controversy or drama or get into cat fights. I mean, it just wasn't her thing. She didn't care about any of that kind of stuff. I can't I can't think of anybody, man or woman, that had an issue with Jennifer Kessie. I also asked specifically about those stories that we've heard that Jennifer used to tell her friends and family about her worries of the construction workers in her building. Briefly. So when she went, um, when she disappeared, I was living in South Dakota. I had moved um, like a year before Jen moved into her condo for my first job. But she had told me over the phone on one occasion, just one time, when I had asked her how the new condo was. She said, um, along the lines of, because obviously it's been so long, um, it's great, I love it. Um, you know, a lot of people are still moving in, and, you know, the workers just kind of give me the creeps. And I was like, what? And I, I think I laughed about it. I said, what do you mean the workers give you the creeps? And she said, you know, they just stare at me and they holler and shout and stuff. And she kind of, like, then just let it go, like, disregarded it. Was she fluent in Spanish? No. <laughs> no. No. No, okay. Oh, anyway. uh, no, I did, I did her Spanish homework. I minored in Spanish. <laughs> oh, so funny. she could say certain things like, Donde está el baño? And give me a beer. Mm-hmm. And where's this? But she was not fluent. No. So I guess we can chalk the Spanish rumor up to more misinformation. In closing with Lindsay, I just asked her to tell me something that she felt like hadn't been shared in all these years. Something about Jennifer. So I think what I would like people to know is that um, that she really is a good person. I know that she never would have put herself in harm's way. Never. She would never meet with somebody she didn't know. She would never go off with somebody she didn't know. Unless she was forcibly taken. Like, this isn't the case of she met someone online and decided to go out and get a drink and something happened. Like, that wasn't her. Um, That did not happen. And that's why it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around around what happened, because... um, But what about going out to meet someone that she did know? I don't know. I don't know. I think that at this point, um, going to meet someone that she knew is entirely possible. But she would never go meet someone she didn't know. So to say that she was going to bed, she called people, she said goodnight, and then did she go to bed? I don't know. Right, that's the burning question. Then what happened? Yeah. What happened after she said, I love you, good night? I think, um, you know, and I feel like, I feel like once we we do find out what happened, we're all going to think, oh, shit, why didn't we think of that? 
Or, of course, yeah. that's what happened. It makes total sense. But, you know, you, you know, and it's so hard for all of us, especially her parents. How do you know? How do you know how to grieve if you don't know what you're grieving? Sure, there's a loss. Um, but is it just, a, a, you know, a moment? Or is it, um, is she not coming back? But it wasn't just those closest to Jennifer who said these things. We talked to other friends as well, those who didn't know her quite as well. So um, I started um, UCF and, well, I got down to the University of Central Florida, which is where I met Jennifer in the, the end of the summer, uh, 1999. Um, and that was going to be my freshman year of college right after graduation. And um, I rushed for uh, sorority, rushed to soror- did rush week there before the week or two before school started. And um, happened to join Alpha Delta Pi, and Jennifer, um, I guess the same thing. Um, she had just rushed and joined Alpha Delta Pi, so we were in the same pledge class together. And um, that's where I met her. And, um, you know, we were the same age, both her first year in school. Um, and, you know, she had a couple friends that had come from the area of the state near Tampa, where she was from. Um but, and I was from the Panhandle part of Florida, Panama City Beach, Florida. So, um, you know, we just, we met that way. Um, we were in the same pledge class together. We went through uh, initiation. Um, we did all the activities together, the socials, the philanthropy um, activities. Um, you know, just, you know, that typical college stuff that you all do together. Um, I wouldn't say we were uh, best friends or anything like that. She had a, a circle of girlfriends that she hung out with more so than me, but we were definitely, um, you know, close because we were in the same pledge class, the same room during initiation and all that stuff. And, and we spent a lot of time together, especially during the freshman and sophomore year uh, of college. So, again, my questions were simple. Tell me about Jennifer. Okay, I would describe Jennifer as very responsible, predictable, um, just a good, like, wholesome, all-American girl, uh, very involved in everything, eager, eager to do things, eager. She's very helpful, very kind. I mean, she just really was a good, wholesome, is a good, wholesome girl that, um, you know, you just... Just I don't know, just a sweet person. She wasn't a, a partier. She wasn't anything like that. She she you know made good grades. She uh, she you know, just did. She was the kind of you know person that you know just a good person. Like you you know <laughs> I don't really know how to explain it, but like just that's just how she was. She was very responsible. Very um, you know you could tell everything she did was very planned and advanced and and and. As opposed to some college, you know, kids that are, you know, wild, partying, going, you know, just by, you know, whatever they decide to do that day. She wasn't like that. She was definitely, you know, one of the sweeter, calmer, more, you know, average girls. She she was very self-aware and and aware of her surroundings and aware of, and and, and you got that impression just from being around her. She was just very responsible, very always. Um, just, you know, always doing the right thing, making the right decisions. And, and so, yes, she was a very safe person, which is another reason why when I saw the national news story on it um, back then when it first came out, I was so shocked because it wasn't like she was the type of person or type of woman 
that would put herself in, in situations where you'd be like, oh, you know, well, you know, that happens sometimes, but she wasn't like that. So it was immediately a complete shock, yes. Uh, you know, of all the people that I've really that I've met in my entire life, like, immediately I knew, immediately I felt something was very wrong because she's not the type of person that would put herself in any predicament where it would be, you know, a, you know, just, she would never put herself in a position where something like that would just happen because, oh man, wrong place, wrong time, that kind of thing. So I immediately felt like something was very wrong because she's not the type of person who just wouldn't show up for work and just would just disappear. Like she had, she was very close to her family, very close with her friends, very, the best word to describe Jennifer because it's just how she was. Like, I mean, she wasn't a party or she wasn't risky or anything like that. Just a wonderful, happy, like, all-American, like, who every parent, like, a, a, really a parent's dream as a child. She was, you know, beautiful, smart, structured. She uh, was confident and, you know, involved and just, like, eager and just so kind and happy, like, all the time. Like, my biggest memory of Jennifer is every time I saw her, she just had a smile on her face, like, always excited, always happy. Um, you know, she wasn't easily swayed. She didn't go out partying, making mistakes like some college kids do. And, and she was just very, I don't know what the word is. Um, I don't know. Just because she was beyond her years responsible and mature and, um, just a great person and not, not in any way risky or, not a type of person that put herself in a position where you could, you know, easily say, well, this could have happened to her. And, and it's just mind-blowing because she was incredibly, like, enthusiastic about life. She loved her life. She really did. And she really had goals. And, and, and What's the takeaway here? Basically, Jennifer was special. And her disappearance has changed so many lives. All the things that we've heard over the years about her responsibility and awareness is more true than maybe we even believed. While there is plenty of misinformation out there surrounding Jennifer's disappearance, there isn't any about the person she is. We heard it from two of her closest friends, including a roommate that she lived with for five years. But we also heard it from someone who didn't know her nearly as well. There's no question about the individual that Jennifer is, which is further confirmation that the chances of her being taken by surprise or having a deep, dark secret that's responsible for her disappearance just aren't very high. Back in episode 6, we discussed the known possible suspects in this case. Among them was an ex-boyfriend of Jennifer's, who is said to have been just across the street from Jennifer's condo the night before she was reported missing, within the window of her disappearance. In that episode, 
I called for this particular individual to come forward and answer some of the questions that have lingered for over a decade. Questions that have painted him as a possible suspect for much of that time. I'm already on record saying that I agree with Jennifer's mom, Joyce, about thinking that the ex-boyfriend didn't really have anything to do with Jennifer's disappearance. Among other things, this person doesn't, in my opinion, match the visual of the person of interest in the video we've all seen. We've also learned that he didn't actually stay at Jennifer's condo over the weekend, something that had previously been accepted as fact. But over the last week, I've also been provided answers to many of those lingering questions. I've had the opportunity to speak with a source with direct knowledge of the situation. Now, this person does wish to remain anonymous, but I consider them credible. So today I share some of those answers with you. The ex did in fact, as has been mentioned by many, go out that night to the Blue Martini, directly across the street from Jennifer's condo. And he did so with a roommate. He returned home between midnight and 1am, around the same time another roommate was getting off of work, who met them back at home. Which, by the way, was not by the UCF area, according to the source. Also, the ex-boyfriend actually did go to work on Tuesday, January 24th, the day Jennifer was reported missing, and the day that has been speculated that he did not attend work, but he left early after Logan, Jennifer's brother, called to tell him she was missing. The reason that the ex has declined to talk to media is because of a mistreatment by a cable news show, which interviewed him for over an hour on the phone. But when he declined an on-camera interview, reported that he was uncooperative. From that point, there has been no trust of the media. However, according to the source, he has participated in any questioning law enforcement has ever asked for. He even agreed to take a polygraph. But after doing so, the investigators never called back to actually set it up. The last time the ex-boyfriend has heard from investigators was back in 2009. According to the source, law enforcement did pull his phone records right after Jennifer's disappearance. And there was no contact or attempted contact with Jennifer at the time of the crime. Additionally, the claims that the ex was still interested in Jennifer and trying to get back with her have been misreported based on the source's statements. The ex-boyfriend has two separate individuals that are his alibis for the whereabouts and actions the night of January 23rd and January 24th, 2006, both of whom have been questioned by investigators. All this goes to say, for us, considering the ex-boyfriend as a suspect is over, unless new evidence comes to light that we're unaware of. In my opinion, he's now cleared out of the way so we can focus our efforts elsewhere. While maybe not officially cleared publicly by Orlando police, we're moving on. Before we're done with this episode, I want to take a few minutes to review where we are in this investigation, up to this point. There's been a lot of information, a lot of unexpected directions traveled, 
and it's time to stop and look back for just a moment before we move forward in the investigation next episode. If you've been taking notes and putting everything together as we go, you may just want to fast forward a few minutes. If you're the type of person who likes to write things down, you may want to grab a notepad. We'll also plan to add this to our website as well. We'll begin with an updated timeline of the events surrounding Jennifer's disappearance and those of which you've heard on this podcast. I'll make special note of things that are yet unconfirmed. Between January 14th and January 18th, 2006, witness Erica claims to have seen Jennifer Kessie at the Northbridge apartment offices. This is in episode 5. This is still yet unconfirmed. Wednesday, January 18th, 2006, Jennifer departs Orlando and drives to her boyfriend's home in Fort Lauderdale in preparation for her trip to St. Croix. On Thursday, January 19th, 2006, Jennifer and her boyfriend fly to St. Croix from Fort Lauderdale. It was a flight of just under three hours. Friday, January 20th, 2006, Logan and friends are arriving to stay at Jennifer's condo, the Mosaic at Millennia, upon which later one friend leaves a cell phone behind. On Sunday, January 22nd, 2006, Jennifer and her boyfriend fly into Miami from St. Croix, and a friend drives them back to Fort Lauderdale. Monday, January 23rd, 2006, at roughly 6 a.m., Jennifer departs Fort Lauderdale and drives directly to work in Ocoee, about a three-hour drive. At roughly 9 a.m., Jennifer arrives to work in Ocoee, and by 6 p.m., Jennifer is leaving work and calls her parents on her cell phone, and she also speaks to her brother Logan about mailing her friend's phone back. Later that night, at about 9.56 p.m., Jennifer talks with her boyfriend Robert on the phone. And at 11 p.m. that night, witness Erica claims to see a girl with a man in a black car, also at Northbridge Apartments. Again, this event is yet still unconfirmed. Also on this night, Jennifer's ex-boyfriend is by her condo at the Blue Martini, across the street from Jennifer's condo. But again, he's no longer considered a suspect in our investigation. On Tuesday, January 24, 2006, Jennifer fails to show up for work. At roughly 11 a.m., her family is notified. At noon, her car is parked at the Huntington on the Green by a mysterious person of interest, which would later be discovered on video. At roughly 3 p.m., Logan and his friend Travis arrive at the Mosaic at Millennium and begin looking for Jennifer. Just 15 minutes later, Joyce and Drew Kessie, Jennifer's parents, arrive as well. At about this same time, between 3 and 3.30, a witness at the Huntington on the Green claims to have seen Jennifer Kessie with a man in a ponytail in the parking lot. Again, this is still a yet unconfirmed sighting. On Thursday, January 26, 2006, at about 8 a.m., Jennifer's car is discovered at the Huntington on the Green. By Friday, January 27, 2006, Jennifer's family is using the Mall at Millennia meeting room as a base of their search operations. It's there that they are shown photos of the POI for the first time. The person doesn't look like anyone that they know. After Jennifer's abduction, sometime in the late winter of 2006 or early winter of 2007, witness Lisa claims to have seen Jennifer in Deckard, Tennessee with a man with dreadlocks. This is from episode 4 and is still yet unconfirmed. And then in January of 2010, four years after Jennifer's disappearance, a complaint is filed against a co-worker alleging inappropriate comments about Jennifer at the time of her disappearance. This is covered in episode 6. 
to date, based on the podcast and the known facts of the case, that's the timeline of events in Jennifer's disappearance. Again, remember that the witness statements that we've heard so far on this podcast, Northbridge, Huntington on the Green, and Deckard, Tennessee, have not been confirmed outside of the witness statements themselves. Now let's go ahead and review some of the other things we've come across in this investigation, as well as the misinformation that's been cleared up. As you heard in the timeline, Jennifer's brother and parents arrived around 3 o'clock and 3.15 at her condo on January 24th. This had previously been misreported on various news channels. Also remember that the person of interest video shows Jennifer's car being parked at 1 p.m., 1300 hours. But the reality is the timestamp on the camera had not been adjusted for daylight savings time. So 1200 hours or noon is the correct time frame of the person of interest video. We also believe the person of interest's height to still be in question and find it very possible that this individual's height is taller than the FBI determined. It's been reported that Jennifer's mobile phone was powered down and the battery removed at 10.40 p.m. the night of January 23rd. But in talking to Jennifer's mom, Joyce, she said that they've never been told this. So that fact is in question. Another area of misinformation over the years has been the bloodhound that traced the POI scent from Jennifer's car back to her condominium complex. There's been various reports of where that dog tracked back to. But as you heard from Joyce Kessie on this show, the dog tracked back to the back stairs facing the pond at Jennifer's condo. We've also clarified that Jennifer didn't have a working security system in her condo. There was an alarm panel, but she didn't have a code or an ability to arm or disarm it. However, there was a panic cord next to her bed, which would notify her call 911, and it was never pulled. Another point of misinformation is that Jennifer's key fob was found years later in a neighborhood in Orlando. However, according to Joyce Cussie, this is not the case. This information is also included on a document on our Facebook group, with even more detail than I've presented here. If you find yourself needing a refresher, that'd be a great place to start. Don't forget that you are a part of this effort too, and we can't begin to express how grateful we are, not only that you're listening, but also that you're participating. Remember to check out the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All of those are at UncconcludedPod. By liking or following these pages, not only do you help support the show, but it provides a greater reach for our efforts to increase the awareness of Jennifer and her disappearance. Our discussion group on Facebook is just about to hit 3,000 members. Come be part of it by searching Unconcluded Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. As we continue to look for ways to expand our investigation, your participation remains the most important part, without question. Remember that we will be back with our sidebar follow-up episode next week. Call into the voicemail line, send in your thoughts on social media, or contact us at unconcludedpod at gmail.com. A special thank you to the USA Today, the Orlando Sentinel, 
WKMG News 6 Orlando, and ABC Action News Tampa Bay for their coverage of Jennifer Kessie and this podcast's efforts. Scott and I will see you next week. Music in this episode is by PC3.